Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Conversations with Code 9. Today we're really, really privileged to have on the show as a guest, Sergeant Brent McIntyre from the Ottawa Police Service. Brent has become a really, really, uh, really valued mate of mine since my Churchill Fellowship back in 2018, where I specifically went up to Ottawa uh, as I'd heard about uh, the new legislation that had been enacted in Ottawa around presumptive legislation for first responders with PTSD. What I wasn't anticipating when I got to Ottawa was to meet someone like Brent and furthermore his family who showed me some outstanding hospitality for the week I was there and uh, we've stayed in contact ever since. So uh, good evening, Ottawa time, Brent. <laughs> good evening, great to hear your voice. And I'm sure you've got the uh, the heater cranked right up over there. <laughs> yes, it's a balmy minus 12 tonight. It's uh, going to be down to minus 17, I think, a little bit later. And uh, yeah, then we're going to warm up. I think we're going to get to a, minus, a balmy minus 6 tomorrow by 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. So that's going to be a nice day. <laughs> I must admit, when I, uh, when I arrived in Ottawa last year, uh, 2018, sorry, it was in early April. That's right. And uh, it's the first time I can say in my life that I've seen icicles hanging off traffic lights and stop signs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was funny. We were all, I, I were talking about how nice it was and it was good weather. We didn't even have any snow until a couple of days into your visit, I believe, right? And then we took you tobogganing and it's like the great Canadian pastime of tobogganing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's pretty sad, isn't it, when a bloke like me who was actually born in Canada um, had never <laughs> actually experienced weather like that before. So, <laughs> but anyway, mate, yeah, yeah. really appreciate you putting some time aside um, to speak to um, all the listeners, and as I said, you know this podcast is being played for all the members of the Code Nine Foundation here across Victoria. So I'm sure they're going to be hanging off every word you talk to us about. Um, and look, as I said, I spent a week in, in Ottawa. Um, and before we get into what your role is over there, could you just tell the listeners for a bit of an icebreaker a, a little bit about yourself and and your policing career? Sure. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, so I started policing in uh, the late 90s, 1998. It's hard to believe I, when I look back now and I was listening to some of the other podcasts and I was smiling and other people said the same thing about their careers. And so in 1998, I started uh, policing in Niagara. So uh, very much like your uh, listeners are probably thinking about the makers of the Great Big Falls. That's where I started my policing career. I wasn't from there. It was just Someplace I, in fact, I was trying to get hired in, in my home city of Ottawa, but uh, they weren't hiring at the time, and I was kind of waiting and waiting, and I was looking to get out of the military, and uh, I was looking for a career, and, and Niagara Regional Police were hiring, and so I applied, and within, I thought I was just going down there to like, practice my skills, and a young guy, right, I didn't, I never really had a great interviewing and, and all the rest and all of a sudden I, I within three months I had a job and I was going off to police college I didn't even have a house down there or a residence or an apartment or anything so uh yeah I started policing down there uh, it was a great experience um completely completely different than the way I was kind of brought up it was a totally different way of of policing uh, it was kind of a uh, touristy town and and a blue, I worked in St. Catharines which was very much a uh, like a blue collar town um, and it was funny uh, I saw a posting I was probably maybe a year and a half on the job and I saw a posting for the dive team and I'm like 
oh my god, you could be a police officer and be a police diver? And here I thought it was like the swim club. I was going to get like a Speedo issued to me and we were going to go out like Baywatch. But no, uh, no, they taught me how to be a police diver and recover dead bodies from uh, the lakes and the rivers and all their other stuff. So I did that for a couple of years and I decided I wanted to come back to my hometown of Ottawa and uh, came back here in 2001. So I'm in my 23rd year of policing, hard to believe. And I've worked in well, patrol, I started in our patrol services, much like most officers would, and uh, worked in all our divisions pretty much. Um, I went to the dive team here in Ottawa, and eventually I ended up running that team as an acting sergeant. And uh, eventually I, I wanted to sort of make those acting stripes more permanent, so I uh, did some a few other uh, detective positions. I worked in our guns and gangs unit for a little bit and then uh, went to the road as a road boss. So I was a road sergeant uh, r- helping run a platoon of, of about 25 uh, officers. So there's three sergeants and then uh, answering to a staff sergeant, which would be like your senior sergeant. Mm-hmm. And I did that for a number of years and um, went uh, eventually I went to our cell block as every newly minted promoted sergeant uh, does. And I was in our cell block for a little bit and, and I uh, was sent to our operations center for a little bit. And then there was this posting that came out for wellness. And I had no idea what this posting was going to be about. But I got a couple of phone calls from a couple of mates, a couple of people in some positions of power. And uh, they all recommended that I apply for something called the peer support coordinator. And I had no idea what that was going to entail. But you do learn something as a couple of calls from a couple of different people all telling you the same thing. Then you learn, maybe you should put your application in and do that because the the die is cast and that's what they want to see you and see where your career heads. And so I was very lucky to compete against, I guess, 20 other sergeants for the position. And I was lucky enough to win that position. And so since about 2017, I've been the peer support coordinator running a a brand new uh, section within Ottawa Police, the wellness section, and, and running a brand new program for our peer support. So we're very new in, in Ottawa to running a peer support program. Uh, although I always tell people we've been, much like most organizations all over this world, uh, for coppers and first responders, uh, we've been doing peer support forever. We've been going car to car, right? We call it the C2C, right? Everyone yeah. needs a, to, to name a, a program to get promoted. And it's like, we've been going car to car and helping each other out, but now we just have a formalized program. So I've been doing that since 2017. And uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great experience and, and I've really, really enjoyed it. It's something that I would, I always thought, it's quite funny, Greg. I always thought that diving and I did diving for probably half of my career or almost 15 years of my career in some form either where it led the team and I always thought diving was going to be sort of the the feather in my cap and going to be what I was remembered for and creation and and creating new standards and all these other things mm-hmm. and uh, what I have found is I think the wellness is really what I've gravitated towards and which uh, hopefully that um, I help create a little bit of a legacy to for the service to continue on when I'm well past and done and when I get to leave this uh, this organization so and mate can I say in the time in the time that I spent with you and we take uh, April 2018 so it hadn't been going for long can I just say that you absolutely possess all the traits that are required for someone to fulfill that position and leave a positive legacy it was just really 
really, really good to see the way officers, as we drove around Otter and you took me to all the different places, the way they all gravitated to you and related to you well. So, mate, all kudos to you. You've, I think you've found your niche and yeah. uh, you've got a really good opportunity and you've already made some massive inroads, which we'll get into in a minute. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's been it's been great. And, you know, it's, I always say I'm not a very smart man, but I know a lot of smart people. And that's, I think, a sign of a, a good leader when you can find people in your organizations and, and you kind of just, you know, you recognize it in them. And, and uh, I don't pretend to have. You there, mate? You've disciplined on yeah. people like yourself and, and other people that, I, you know, uh, that have been doing this for a long period of time. And, and I kind of try to pick up with what they've been putting down for many years. So, What about Brent McIntyre, the person, mate? Just a quick overview of you as a person and family and what you do outside of work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I live here in, in just outside of Ottawa. I have two great kids, uh, two daughters. Uh, they're teenagers, 15 and 13, feeling like they're 25 and, <laughs> and 30. Uh, but no, uh, they're in high school. And uh, my wife, uh, Lisa, she works for Canada Border Services Agency, which is, um, she does right intel work for them uh she started off uh, you know as a border officer checking people going to the states and, and coming back and all the rest and then uh, gravitated into she worked in um i guess uh investigations for our, our immigration wise and then deporting eventually she deported people all back to their home country when they were legally in canada and so uh i always call her the federal agent eh? she's like the secret agent of <laughs> 007 and and I'm just a lowly street cop, which is I'm, I sometimes feel like I'm not even a police officer anymore. I kind of have a whole different aspect of police yeah. that I never, ever uh, foresaw when I joined this job. And when I was I always thought I was going to be this emergency operations guy and doing diving and other kind of the cool, the cool kids stuff. And uh, I found myself really gravitated towards this kind of human side of, of policing, right, of our, helping our people. So, uh, very yeah, good. That's, that's my family. Yeah. So, mate, back, if we go now to talk a little bit about the wellness unit. So you said back in 2017 uh, you were lucky enough to, to get the position. Um, I suppose firstly just explain to us back then when you first got the job what the wellness unit looked like. So we were just in the midst of creating uh, a wellness unit when I got the job. There nobody. I always joked with my boss, I'm like, I am going to have an outstanding evaluation because I'll be 100% better than the person before me because we had <laughs> nothing, right? And and she always smiles. And so when we started, uh, I guess about 2015, she was, uh, my boss, Angela, is a registered nurse. She's been doing oc oc health, occupational health for uh, many years, worked for a high-tech company, gravitated over towards us about 10 years ago. And about, uh, so... Uh, yeah, it, about, I guess, 2010, 2011, she started with Ottawa Police. And then around that 2015, she got a acting director's job to start creating uh, a program of wellness. Instead of us being reactionary, which we had always been with disability management, is it, that's really what our, our health and safety uh, people were doing. We're just, you know, people that were off sick and making sure their paperwork was done. And, and that was about it. And, and she saw the, the vision of, okay, we need to create something much more proactive and uh, all this stemmed out of the ombudsman report of 
2011, which was the uh, Andre Marin report into the Ontario Provincial Police. Mm-hmm. And, and and he asked the question of the Ontario Provincial Police is why is it that for the last 20 years, uh, an OPP officer has been taking their own life um, every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, and what was the organization doing? And, and it became sort of an indictment of, of our bigger colleague of the, our provincial police, but it really could have been any one police service in, in Ontario. And I would say probably in Canada at that time, because, you know, you there, Mike? Hello? As an organization to help our members proactively, we were very much a reactionary. And so, uh, Angela was tasked with trying to create this, uh, this, okay, what is it going to look like for the, for the Ottawa police service, the nation's capital? And, so she decided that to start off that she was going to create two positions. One was going to be sort of reactionary. Uh, so when people were in crisis or were having a, a tough time, a tough go of it, that there would be somebody in the organization that would be responsible for them. And she turned that the peer support coordinator. And it wouldn't be necessarily up to the peer supporter, coordinate, the coordinator, the sergeant to do all the peer supporting, but he would run a team of, of people that wanted to volunteer to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other uh, role was going to be more proactive, and it was going to be how do we swim upstream? How do we create programs and and uh, uh, courses and that type of stuff for our membership to be more proactive on their mental health? And that was our resiliency sergeant. So there was two sergeants uh, that was the position was created to sort of lead this new section. And, uh, and I was privileged to work with uh, John Swab, my partner, and John and I actually had known each other back in university days when we were both volunteers, uh, you know, trying to get on to be a police officer. We were both volunteers for the police service, you know, uh, doing student things for them, and we had met each other. And it's funny how your life outside of policing kind of dovetails back into it. We've uh-huh. never worked together uh, as a police officer until this moment where we, we became sort of uh, the Bert and Ernie show, right? And we were <laughs> sort of tasked with creating this idea of uh, how do we make our service much uh, better for the members and how do we start offering them real concrete programs? And that's kind of how it's, how it's started to formalize. And, and uh, yeah, it, it was a, uh, it was a steep learning curve, to say the least. There, Craig, a steep learning curve. So, so before um, before the wellness unit, I suppose, started in earnest, Brent. What can you just outline for the listeners, perhaps? So, in in the case of, let's say, there was a, a critical incident, or someone was struggling with their mental health, or even their physical health, relationship issues, anything that affects officers' well-being. What what was offered by the Ottawa Police Service to help those staff at that time before the wellness unit was created and up and running? Really, uh, it's sad to say, but we really didn't have a lot. Unless you were going to get some support from your individual chain of command, um, there was nothing that the police service was really doing to uh, check in with our people. And we were hearing it in loud uh, loudspeakers back to us saying, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Constable whoever, Constable Bob Bloggins was, had been off for two or three years and not one person had checked in with them because people were being forgotten and it was a very sad state of affairs. And what... Just lost you again, Mike. You there? And they were very good at their job, but their job was to make sure the paperwork was complete, to do check-ins with them uh, periodically, but their caseload 
every year started climbing and they were unable to uh, stay on top of it. They were just simply overwhelmed by the numbers. And, and, and we have found that every year just, it does keep climbing. Right. And, and accommodations and maybe, and these disability management specials would be tasked with multiple different things, right? They'd be tasked with, Oh, return to work. And they'd be tasked with, Oh, somebody who's off on a, on a, a worker's compensation claim. And somebody would be off on just normal sick leave or somebody was off on long-term disability. And there was nobody doing proactive work to check in on these people, or or if they could, they were they were doing only sort of the bare minimum, and they were able to capture uh, you know touch base with the, the the number of people significantly over the calendar year. So people would be starting to feel that they hadn't heard from anybody in six months. It's not because the people that were working in that section weren't weren't caring and didn't want to. They simply just had way too many files. And they were trying to, you know, they were being pulled in a thousand different directions. So these poor disability management specialists had no help. And of course, we are notorious within policing of uh, just keep just keep soldiering on, right? Is the mm. old adage. It's like you're a paramilitary organization. You know, the the battle is over this way. Everybody just keep moving towards the, the battle. And it's like, listen, we are at a stage where we, we are we have the walking wounded here now and, and we aren't able to keep up on it. And people are starting to feel absolutely neglected by the organization. And it's not the lack of wanting to help people. And, and they were, uh, you know, I, I remember when I walked into this job, <laughs> I asked for, Oh, do we have a list of, I mean, you got to remember, I didn't, I don't have a background in psychology. I don't have, I, I had a criminology degree. I, I came from the artillery in, in, in the Canadian forces. I didn't know which, you know, how to, how to help people with any concrete programming. And so I asked for the, you know, who do we refer our members to, to our, to psychologists in the, uh, in the, in the Ottawa area. And I got a, uh, you know, an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And there was about four names or five <laughs> names on it. Yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Uh, the Ottawa Police Service is 2,000 members strong, right? We have, you know, 1,600, 1,500 police officers, another 500 and change uh, civilian members. Uh, we are the nation's capital. We have five names that we refer people to. Like, And it, it's just that nobody had ever done that work. There was nobody – that wasn't their job. Their job was to make sure the paperwork was in and to touch base with people and try to offer them some suggestions. But we didn't have anybody actually looking at proactively how do we get people – in uh, to, to services, psych services, and, and to give them the supports that they need to keep them in the game, which was, well, we were, I would say we were crumbling at that point. Morale was very low. It was people were hurting and, uh, and all, all we saw was increased numbers and people going off. So taking all that into account, Brent, when you became, for want of a better description, the, the new face of, of the wellness unit, what sort of reaction did you get from the staff as you traveled throughout Ottawa was it anger was it where have you been or was it like they were just absolutely thirsty for to sit down and talk to you and hear what you could help them with absolutely there was and I want to keep going back to this our chain of command the people that work within our police service are actually very caring very compassionate people but they simply have a job to do is both you know, making sure that police officers hit the road and that we police the city and that we solve crimes and, you know, heaven forbid, that little thing called, you know, investigations of criminal offences and, and holding people accountable. And they simply were, you know, if you had a, a roster of 20 members on and you had four or five that were off and then you were trying to make sure that you were balancing the numbers and making sure we had numbers 
uh, hitting the road. And, and obviously, you know, we couldn't meet our minimum staffing. There was overtime galore. Uh, and I think a lot of people in senior management that might be listening to this would sort of be uh, nodding in agreement. They'd be like, we, our overtime budget was, was through the roof, right? Because yeah. we, and what was that doing? That was just creating more people getting injured because we were asking people to work more and more hours, right? And something I've learned very, well, I mean, something we always knew anybody that's been around policing for more than a few years realizes that you get some of your colleagues that work all the time and there's a reason why they work all the time right and that they don't have other things in their personal life that they are struggling or financially or or maybe with other uh other issues that they're just like it's just easier to go to work right because i don't have to listen to the family and i don't have to uh you know talk about my feelings or whatever i just go to work and i know what's expected of me and and for the vast majority we have excellent police officers people that want to do a good work and they and, and want to come to work and but they use it as that crutch right and that's what i was finding that that staff sergeants the people that were running our platoons and and inspectors were just so thankful that we actually had somebody to to turn to to ask those hard questions what's the best way to reach out to somebody can somebody reach out to some of my member because maybe our chain of command doesn't have the best relationship with them right and you will see and i have seen over my 23 years of policing that sometimes people feel that their chain of command is the problem right and so they, they don't they won't open up and so maybe i'm this neutral third-party person that can come in and 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 try to find uh, a happy medium right and because i simply I, I never pretended to be somebody I wasn't, and I was certain that all I ever said was that I'm here to help, and I, I won't stop till I make sure that you do get the help that you need. And, and that I guess that message of that, hey, I, I, I'm not pretending to be anybody I'm not. I'm just here to actually you know, offer an ear, uh, provide some guidance, and to follow up and to make sure that you know, we do have the supports that we, t- that we keep wishing that we had that that i'm somebody that's going to find them in the community or 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 if they don't exist i will start creating them mm-hmm. and uh and that's and that's kind of where it, it, it was really well received i can't i can't say that enough that everybody there's not one time that people really pushed back in fact people were asking me for my opinions to weigh in on things that that i felt i wasn't qualified to do because that you know that they saw us as this this center of expertise and, and i think i'm i'm starting to get a a, a better sense of of you know uh, mental health and awareness and the courses I take and the, and the conferences and the papers I read and all the rest, but that that didn't happen you know overnight. That that yeah. took that took years to and, and I think most people would agree that they get into this job. It's not something that you're born with. It, as much as people think that we all these police officers we are issued these tools right and it's like oh they must have taught you this at police. Uh, they didn't teach us any of this stuff. This is all brand new for me, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, over the the, the the advancements you've made in the three years or so that you've been at the wellness unit, Brent, is uh, what sort? What are the main improvements you think that still need to be um, to be made that can you know advance the quality of the service that the unit provides? Well, the first thing uh, we did uh, when I uh, got my job was that um, it, the beauty of my boss is she didn't expect me to have the knowledge, skills, and abilities to create a program out of thin air. It would have taken me probably a year or two or or three years to figure that out. So what we did initially was we outsourced our peer support uh, program to the experts in the field. And and the guy that helped me set it up, his name was Stéphane Grenier. And Stéphane is uh, quite well known in Canada. Um, He runs a uh, company uh, called Mental Health Innovations. And but before he did that, 
He was uh, a light colonel, lieutenant colonel in the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, served um, a tour in Rwanda during the genocides, was there as the genocides were unfolding. And as he says, and as he talks about, he came back to Canada a changed man and not for the best. And he says, uh, he talked to me and, and, and he, he explained, he goes, Brent, I, I, you know, I tried to complete suicide three different times, but it was never in my doctor's office, right? Yeah. He goes, I, I decided that we needed as the Canadian Armed Forces to create a program where we have this support mechanism in between doctor's visits. And I was like, well, that's genius stuff. <laughs> and, and, he, and so he created this company, this social uh, enterprise, and uh, to help other you know, first responders and other companies, and he'd work with some big federal government uh, contracts, uh, other police services, and and he, I really think that he was one of the leaders here that helped me get, uh, you know, step off on the right foot here. Uh, and we had a shared sort of military experience, but but really, regardless, it was more of his personality that really helped me formulate my initial steps of how am I going to be this coordinator of a new program. So um, we created uh, uh, the program uh, based on the Canadian Forces. We, uh, But it wasn't just like, here, take the rubber stamp of what the Canadian Forces are doing and, and put it into Ottawa Police. We did engagement sessions. We found out what the membership wanted, what they thought would be successful with the police service. And then they kind of did the reverse engineering of it. It's like, you know, we'd have these engagement sessions and we would go around to every division and talk to all the, the services and make sure that they, they realize, um, you know, the membership, what peer sport was about. And, and then he asked some really great questions and he would ask questions like, don't tell me what would make peer support successful. Tell me what, how it would fail in Ottawa police. What would it be to, to, you know, as a, the failing point? And, you know, and people would come up with great ideas. Oh yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, it would fail if you made peer support sort of, uh, a prerequisite to get promoted around this place, right? And, and so you, you fix Brent McIntyre, and, and that's how you get your stripes as a sergeant or something like that, which mm-hmm. was like, yes, a good point. We Let's make sure that when we write our policies and our procedures that we include things like we cannot use other people's stories, uh, you know, for our own uh for our own promotional processes or for, you know, to, to get ahead in this organization. So these were things that we learned along the way uh, from the, his experience. And so, uh, you know, we, we took about six months to really get a feel for what the, you know, um, what the membership wanted to be. And one thing I would suggest to our members, if there's a. Just look or fire. Um, that that aren't uh, you know in the peer sport business, that start doing would be to start engaging sort of uh, uh, your associations, your unions, that type of thing, uh, getting their buy-in because that was key and paramount to our success. So um, you know uh, we were really pushed, and even our positions uh, were really pushed heavily by our association and and held our chief at the time accountable for saying this is something we need for our membership because. It benefits the associations and our unions because they will see a decrease in the number of people phoning the association at offices in in crisis, right? Because they know now that the, there's there is some uh, some mechanism within the police service to help our members, and that wasn't always the case in our mm. in our field. So um, that was one thing we so we launched in uh, July first, Canada Day, uh, twenty eighteen. So we've had a, our program up and running for peer support for two years. We've had 
Well, I would say uh, we use a coded informant system that we make sure that we never take people's names and, and all the rest. Another great uh, aspect of, of what we learn from the membership. Um, but we do, you know, we, we make sure we notate when we do meet with people. So for the bean counters out there that want to know how their money is being spent within wellness, they, we can tell them how many people we see. So in two years, we've had over 150 people through our program out of a a membership of 2000 and I would say that is vastly underrated uh, uh, I think a lot of our peer support people that um, do that work that I help coordinate um, they, you know they don't always put in their their contact sheets and they're uh, using the program that we have and so I know that we're doing a lot more great work out there because people are, are just trying to get the help to our members right and and uh, so, so that really kind of warms me we've had I think We've tallied up over 400 interactions with those 150, and then, like I said, it was vastly under-reported. And I was all, you know, I did all these engagement sessions, and we made a video, and the video was great. It had real people talking about their stories and how their informal peer support and, and some of their formal peer support really helped them. And when we went to launch, uh, we decided that it wasn't just going to be for sworn members. We decided we were, were going to launch for both sworn and our civilian members. They're equally as important in our organization. It's the health of all people that work with us. And I really have a new uh, profound respect for the civilian members of our organization and, and the work we asked them to do. Yeah. But we also thought of we need to include our retirees and our veterans of the police service. We have people that leave this service and we still have a duty of care for those people, right? So we Absolutely. wanted to make sure that we had veterans of our service and retirees part of our peer support program. And we also, and this was part of my boss and part of Steph was like, we really got to start including our family members. So very, very privileged. I was, when we went to launch, I was like, you know, and asked for applications. I was like, you know, Steph would say, you know, if you have 1% of your, uh, of your service as a peer supporter, you're, you're good. That would be a good first start. And so that would be, I'm like, okay, 20. I need 20 people to want to step forward to volunteer at the side of their desk on top of all their other duties to do this uh, this work, this, this benevolence, right? This, this pay this forward to, to their colleagues. Yeah. And I was overwhelmed. We had over, I was like, if we get 20, please, please let me have 20. Right. And I was overwhelmed because we had over 70 applicants and wow. our initial go around. It was, it was fantastic. I had, uh, I had a retired member, uh, who was in an old age home in Kingston and his name was Hans and, and Hans sent me a handwritten letter on his, in his, I'm sure he wrote it three times to get his best penmanship <laughs> and he had retired in 1982 and that was the year our constitution was repatriated and we got the charter of rights and freedoms. This was, I was the seven years of age folks and <laughs> I was, I was in, in, in public school and this man retires from the, from the police service and, and writes his handwritten note and says, Brent, I am so happy and, and honored that to get this letter from the police service because I mailed out to everybody that we had a, a contact information that worked for the police service that currently works for them or had worked for them. We mailed it out to their family to let their families know and them know about this program. And he wrote me back and he said, I was, I was so honored because I know that uh, the amount of people that struggled when I was a police officer and uh, my colleagues, they wouldn't have struggled nearly as much and they would have had far more successful a personal and professional lives had this type of program been in place. And I've kept this letter and I've cherished this letter. This letter has sort of been the beacon to say this is if Hans can 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 
point to me and say, you know, yes, this program would work and I've reached him in a, in a, in a long-term care facility, uh, then I know that this, that, that I, we've nailed it. Right. And so Absolutely. I was privileged. We had 70 applicants. We had, we met all our criteria. We had, uh, family members, retirees and, and, currently serving civilian and sworn members and, and it was great and so out of those 70 we were able to whittle it down to 37 so for two years we've had 37 of our members uh, volunteer their time that I've helped coordinate uh, to, to get it up and running so that has been a real feather in the auto police's cap I, I can't say enough about the people that helped me get to where we are with that, the, the number of the hard work that my members are doing out there, the interactions that they have, the constant uh, support they're giving. Um, and then, you know, we started looking at uh, other programs that uh, that we wanted to get off the ground. So if I was doing reactionary peer support, then I was we had to be looking at, you know, our early intervention program is what we, we originally thought. And, and what are some courses we can start offering our members um, proactively to start so they start understanding their own mental health. You know, it's very easy for the copper to drive by our, our shelters, our men's shelters, or female shelters, and and you know think that the mental health doesn't apply to them. It only happens to the, to the public. But the yeah. reality is, is that we struggle very difficult in, in a very difficult fashion to, to to really talk about our own mental health. So we started our, the Road to Mental Readiness, which was a, a Canadian Forces program rolled out, and that we rolled that out. That was one of our proactive steps, and that went to all our are um, our, our currently serving civilian and sworn members. Uh, we're looking at rolling that out to our family members and retirees. We've done both. Um, then, you know, we started looking at, okay, this early intervention program, this early intervention is sort of like we are, and I talk about this, you know, when I give speeches and talks to people, it's like we are an intelligence gathering organization, much like every other police organization around this world. And, you know, from the time you're a street cop to the time you're a big city detective and you're in these undercover and you're the with the cool kids and, and, and you know, working undercover in drug operations and, and other, uh, you know, anti-terrorism and all this other things that we have to do as police officers, we gather intelligence on what's happening. But what we don't do, what, what we are neglectful of doing is we never gather intelligence on in our own people and for the right reasons, right? We don't, yeah. we don't, we don't gather it to say like, okay, well, how do we know which platoons have been subjected to a sudden infant deaths lately, or how do we know what platoons were involved in a shooting, or, or what? And I always talk to our members and I say, you will remember this. This will be a story that lives inside of you, but. But the organization has a very short memory and they will forget that, you know, what constables or what officers or what detectives got involved in a really uh, dangerous or, 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 or scary situation. And so why aren't we creating a program where we start grab, grabbing data to start tracking these types of things? Why don't we grab, you know, we call it uniform crime reports. It comes from our uh, Statistics Canada. And it's so how do we know that a, an assault in Vancouver is the same as an assault in Ottawa or an assault in, in Halifax from, uh, you know, side to side of this country, this beautiful country. And it's like, well, the Stats Canada made sure that we report, you know, that we report similar crimes. So why don't we take some of that, those statistics and start saying, okay, well, these are the types of, of really traumatic incidents that we start following, right? And so we started this program and started following uh, traumas uh, that different uh, sections were having to go to. And then we, we realized that every section in this organization is kind of a little bit different, right? You know, so when we were following our, our sexual assault child abuse section and our IDAN section, well, 
they don't, their day doesn't really start until they have a traumatic incident. You know, somebody phones them up or they get something in their inbox to, to investigate. So we, we have to really, you know, start tweaking to individual sections. So we're, we're just, you know, unfortunately COVID's really thrown a ringer in. Uh, we haven't been able to launch that program successfully. We did a pilot on it. We modeled it after our, our OPP brothers and sisters that, that did a similar pro, uh, pilot project on, on a program. We were trying to make sure that we were in keeping with our other police services in Ontario and Canada. And so, um, you know, we, we were able to get uh, to a point where the pilot was successful. We are looking at launching very shortly uh, for our frontline officers, and then we're going to be rolling it out organizational-wide. So we'll be starting to track certain things like uh, overtime and complaints and uh, traumatic incidences that members are being subjected to, right? And it very much is we're, we're tracking the same sort of stuff that the copper might go to on the street, but also what about the report analyst that has to read each file, right, to make mm. sure they're complete? Yeah. And, and so we're tracking, because that vicarious trauma is absolutely fundamentally uh, debilitating for some people, and, and, and they can really, we need to make sure that we stay on top of it for these people, that we offer them the same level of support as we would for our frontline responders as well. So we're doing that. Uh, our, our next phases as we move into it is we're looking at a reintegration program, and that's something that we modeled on our Edmonton colleagues. And uh, I was privileged to attend back to my stomping grounds of Niagara region uh, about a, I guess about a year and a half ago. Uh, I went there um, to, uh, you know, be educated on a reintegration process. And what a reintegration would be is they kind of have two streams. So we have a long term and a short term. And the long term, uh, I guess, is really for people that have suffered with a mental health illness mm-hmm. or other, some type of other illness. Um, it could be physical injury, and they are, are they're at a stage in their recovery that they're able to come back to work. And and what we had not been doing is that anywhere in Ontario and, and mostly across Canada, until Edmonton started doing this about 10 years ago, was helping people in a proactive manner. So there was nobody to say that, oh, you're ready to come back to work after being off for three years because of, oh, I don't know, depression or, or some other uh, uh, illness. They were just like, well, get back out on the range, put 42 bullet holes in a piece of paper 40 feet away, and we'll give you back your gun and get back out on the road, right? And that, to me, is absolutely not the way to be helping our our members feel comfortable and confident in in returning to work. So this reintegration program is going to deal with sort of that long-term, people that have been off work for a long period of time, and that could be our disability, uh, people that are on workers' comp or WSIB, as we call it here in Canada, Uh, the workplace insurance, you know, they're returning after... uh, an absence yep. or it could be people that have been you know away for long-term disability reasons or they've just been away for you know up to four months or five months or, or so uh because they've been they've been ill and they need just that little extra helping hand to get them back to feeling comfortable about putting those holes on the paper and feeling comfortable about doing the work that is so critical out there right getting so that they have the supports and then that other side of that reintegration is that short-term program so uh, again, you know, we have people that would go through a traumatic incident of having to take uh, 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 somebody's life in the course of their duties lawfully, uh, and and there was no support. It was like, okay, well, you're off work uh, because I, I think you should be is basically what their thought is. But we had members that would be involved in a gunfight, and uh, and it was really up to them to decide when they were going to come back to work. 
And to me, that was just another like a light bulb. I was like, how is it that in 2020, we're allowing people who are in and don't, don't mistake ourselves, folks, right? We are in a trauma induced job. Everything we do in this job, we are being, we're not like, you know, the teachers or the, you know, uh, you know, the secretaries and, and the people that work in high tech or bankers or any of the other people that go to work. Uh, our job is, is all about traumas, right? And car accidents Absolutely. and, and yep. people being victimized. And, and that is something that we really need to sort of wrap our head around. It's like, well, how do we help these people proactively? And so we are creating this, this reintegration program about helping these people that go through that. Right. And so before they come back to the road, they have to come through our program and they have to get reintegrated with reaccustomed to their use of force options. They have to feel comfortable in their skills. You know, if your taser, if your, uh, you know, uh, you know, energy emitting weapon doesn't work and you don't have any faith in it anymore. Well, what does that say? You know, well, the next time you're, you know, into a confrontation where you're going to have to either potentially use a conductive energy weapon or you're going to go hands on or you're going to have to use your firearm. Right. So how is it that we're allowing these people to go back to work without these supports in place to feel at their best at the top of their game? So we're, we're working towards that. And so this year in the midst of COVID and all the rest, we've got approval. We went from having these two two sergeant positions. We now actually have uh, four people in, in the position. Um, we we're very lucky. We're very proactive here in Ottawa in the sense that uh, Angela, my boss, is uh, very attuned to what's kind of happening in the province. We had a chief coroner's report um, that came out uh, about a year ago. Uh, Angela sat on that board. It was experts in the field as well as people with lived experience that uh, sat down with the chief coroner to go over the nine police suicides that happened in um, 2018 uh, to talk about, okay, what is it that the service could do better, right? So mm -hmm. let's get it from the, the, the people with lived experience as well as the experts in the field to say, what is it that the services could do better? A couple of the recommendations that came down out of that would be have somebody to do sort of a wellness coordinated job for this reintegration, as well as having civilian navigators. So we now have four people that work in here in our section in Ottawa. We have, uh, of course, my position is peer support. I have the position of the reintegration, uh, sort of the, the early intervention, which is our proactive approach. Now we have a wellness sergeant, which does that reintegration that her job, uh, we are blessed to have uh, my colleague Kelly Lyle is in with us and she's of course the peer supporter as well. And her job is gonna be to create this, you know, on top of other things, but uh, help me create and help the organization create um, this reintegration program that I talked about, as well as let's start creating more proactive things that are members, right? Health and fitness, those types of things that I've been doing at the side of my desk where. You very much. Uh, right. So that was something that we were blessed. And then we also were able to have uh, the lovely and talented Shauna McCormick, who is our civilian navigator, came from us. She had a background in our disability management, had a background in working before she worked for our police service. She actually worked at our workers' compensation board as an adjudicator, has a great understanding of what the paperwork has to be, and then also is connected in with all these organizations that are outside of the police service, all these 
these um, charities and other not-for-profits and, and psychologists and all these other things, all these other organizations that are out there that can help our members. And we didn't have anybody except for myself for the last few years kind of trying to create a system of, of referring our members and finding out what's out in the Ottawa area. Now we actually have somebody responsible for that. So we went from, you know, in, in kind of three years, we went from um, – you know, two to now we're four, and I always call it the fifth beetle. We actually were able to get a, a business analyst in there to help with our early intervention program as well. So now we actually have computer support person, right, that can help us grab those data sets that we so desperately need to track for our members. Because you start looking at coppers, and it's like, I don't know about you, but, you know, I have trouble turning on my computer at times. And if my, thank God this is audio, because I don't know if my, uh, my, I wouldn't know how to troubleshoot my internet for, for, you know, for crying out loud. So this has been really, uh, really positive that we've expanded to a five member wellness section. And then we also still have, you know, our disability management section, right. That we work hand in hand with now so that they don't feel so overwhelmed and, and, you know, with, with with the number of files they have and they have somebody to phone up and say could you please check in with so-and-so i've been talking to constable or or you know whoever and and they've asked for a potential reach out because they want to know what type of things are available to them right and what is available to their family members right and that's been in my opinion the game changer where we start we're not being as reactionary we're being much more proactive absolutely it's uh, being as proactive as you can is a massive part of it, isn't it? Just to actually try and um, get ahead of the curve. Oh my God, man! It's like it's been something that I was banging my head against, right? And and you know I'd be trying to get ahead of the curve, but still trying to support our members. And I don't know. I, I know that we really kind of bonded over the work you did when you did in wellness, and I learned so much when you were – as much as you learned from from me and my organization, I learned way more from you and, and how to you know, both be uh, uh, a great uh, father and, and partner, but also to, to do this work that we do. And, and I was uh, I was really struggling at times, right? How do I do this proactive and this reactive work at the same time? Yeah. And I was, I was struggling until we had these extra bodies come in. I was really struggling about how do I make sure, I knew we had to swim upstream. I knew we had to get to the source before it became a problem. I knew that we needed much more than just sort of uh, grabbing data sets and then, and then asking people if they're okay, like our early intervention. I knew we needed to get people into programs earlier so that they never ever actually had to, uh, or maybe it was just a pop-up when they met with a peer supporter, right? It wasn't somebody in absolute crisis that I was dealing with, right? And, and unfortunately in, in my two years, uh, well, I've been, I've been here three, but in the last two years, we've had two suicides of sworn members uh, in our in our in our service, and those have really uh, they've shaken they've shaken a lot of people. We've had three in the last kind of uh, seven years. Um, you know, uh, it, it's a problem that just isn't going away. And, and like I said, it's not just a problem for Ottawa. It's not just the fact that it's not that we are the problem. It's that our organization and our organization, the work we do. It just it's that trauma infused along with all these other things that we expect of people to be the perfect on all fronts and then are you know when you when you're having a bad day 
you're not able to actually show that and and our people struggle with that mm. and and I'm hoping that we are starting to to change that stigma right and we're hoping to change the sort of narrative that's out there to say it's okay not to be okay absolutely that's all right, right? Yeah. so you you lead in you lead in perfectly mate to my final question in closing that's around about um you know what do you think for yourself what's the hardest part of your role um over the you know the couple of years that you've been doing what have you you know really had to work on and what's been really challenging for you for my role right is is definitely trouble for me to find that balance uh for i don't know for anybody that's listening out there that's done this type of work it's like i thought i needed to be everything to everybody right and and you've rapidly find out that you certainly just get pulled in a thousand directions and as much as people warn you, you're like, yeah, 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 that's fine. I can, ha- I can handle, it. I can handle it. And then one day you wake up and you just say, I, I, I've actually, I need to take a break. And 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 that has been, it was a huge challenge. And and for me, for kind of two and a half, you know, leading up to this year, through almost three years, to be handling sort of trying to create, I was creating. Um, sitting on boards, uh, chair different charities that are specific to first responders. Uh, I was sitting on two different charities. I was as a board of director. I was, I was uh, trying to help members that were in absolute crisis. I was trying to build proactive programs like uh, reintegration. I was uh, trying to find uh, different charities that could help our members and and how do I help them so that we help each other? It just became too much, and and I started to falter. And this last suicide that we experienced at the end of uh, November. Uh, of uh, of 2020 really kind of shook me to my foundation and, uh, and I needed to take a break and that's very hard for all of us and, and I look around at my colleagues they're all type A's right I mean I can tell a cop a mile away much like anybody else yeah. right it's, it's the guy in the back of, of the restaurant with his back to the wall yes. watching the front door and, <laughs> and, and looking at everybody's hands and you get and they're just we're all type A's we want to be this perfect person and help as many people and, it, and it's I find it's amplified so much more when the people we're helping isn't the general public, it's the people you work with. And uh, I always, I love the fact about policing that I was helping people, and I love the fact even more that I'm helping our people. But it, it really, I was very, very close to this uh, member that completed suicide in November. Um, we were, I was, uh, you know, unfortunately, one of the problems that you'll get uh, People think you're the master mechanic when you're the coordinator, if you're a sergeant, if you have rank. They think that you are, you know, if your car's broken, you don't want the new kid uh, learning to fix the car to come out. You want the master mechanic to make sure that he gets that and the five other things that are wrong with you. So people, my plate was filling very quickly with people that I was trying to support. Uh, this one member that I was supporting, I was ultimately unsuccessful and we led right up to the day he completed suicide that I was the last person to talk to him. I really, um, you know, and that, and then ultimately, um, because of the nature of, of, of he was under uh, sort of investigation, uh, as many of our members that we do help tend to come through that that internal affairs sort of side of things, and uh, you know, he didn't have a great experience with the police service, had had a lot of animosity towards it. His family didn't have a lot of kind things and uh, to say about the police service and. Uh, after he completed suicide, I also became the assisting officer to help plan the funeral, to assist the family with all the paperwork, and and that became uh, debilitating. And that became 
because I got it from all sides. I got it from uh, a personal failure that I saw that in myself, and that's how I felt at least. <clears throat> and and I also saw, you know, that how did I let this family down, and I saw how I let this individual down, how I let my colleagues down. Now, of course, nobody ever said anything like that to me. They were all extremely supportive. Everybody, and, and you start having, I guess, more... Um, you know, the internal struggle sort of fades a bit once you start having, you know, you get that, I don't know, reptilian side of your brain under control and that negative self-talk under control and you start yeah. having more, you know, the emotional side of your brain is, is you know, my emotional side was screaming at me where my rational side of my brain was like, well, how could you know that this is what he was going to do, right? I was doing everything everybody ever told me of uh, to do, right? Is take time for my family and have dinners with them and, and make sure that I didn't neglect them. And I didn't know what he was going to do that, that evening. And, and I had no idea. And, and the family didn't blame the family is just absolutely supportive of the work that I was doing with, with their, you know, uh, husband and, and father. But, you know, I found that that was one of the biggest, and for me, uh, I, I went to my boss to take a knee and I said, I, I just, after the funeral is done, I, I will need to take uh, a time away from this job. And that was extremely hard because uh, much like the rest, I'm that's type A and I want to help all these people and I want yeah. to create fantastic programs that help as many people as possible. But I just knew that the next thing that would happen would, would probably, I wouldn't come back to this job. Right? And so I needed to take some time. So I'm still, I guess, currently on a sabbatical. And, and I, I said to the, my boss, uh, you know, and it was very emotional and it was, I talked to her and I said, listen, the, the one thing I'm asking, everybody asked me at the executive level, I was, I was one of the people that had to give the next kid notification to the family. I was, I was there. I was, I talked to them and, and the chief and the deputy and everybody's talking to me, what do I need to help? And am I okay? And I said, what would help me was to make sure that they replace me, that the, my, my out of office doesn't just go on. They don't expect the other people in my in, in my office to take on, you know, the extra burden of it that they replace me and they bring somebody in to do the work that I've been doing and, and in the short term and, and uh, within 12 hours of me making that request, they absolutely had that. There was the chief had sent out a thing because of our COVID that there was no transfers happening in the organization at all. Uh, except for mine. <laughs> and, and the transfer was they brought somebody in when I had to take well, a bow out. Yeah. And so that, that spoke volumes to me. That spoke that the executive, the chief, that everybody that has been saying that we're here, we, we know the work you're doing, Brent, is important. We know the work, the wellness section, we, we value it. That was um, satisfying to know that the, the words, uh, it just wasn't empty words. It was deeds and deeds yeah. spoke. And they, and I can't thank, you know, and I'm not here to, to kiss up to the executive and all the rest. I, I, I'm firmly one that is very vocal about where I think we need to improve. But I can tell you, and I tell my, you know, my comrades and, and the other police officers and people that I work with, I say, these are deeds that they're doing. They have increased, you know, they doubled, over doubled our, our, our uh, program, right? The strength of yep. human resources. And, and that speaks volumes. And then they replaced me within 12 hours of me asking to make sure that, that the work that my inbox just didn't fill and fill and fill, right? That there was somebody to do this work. That this is all showing signs of the change that Ottawa Police is doing. And that we're nowhere near where, you know, Vic Pohl is. And, and some of these uh, police services have been doing peer support for 20 years. And, and, you know, the robust nature of embedded psychologists and all the rest. 
we are a, a fairly, you know, medium size for Canada police service. Um, you know, that we're, you know, we, we still have a lot of growth to do, but, but this really, this was the, what has enabled me to, to wrap my head around once I, I feel strong to come back that this is where my calling is. Right. And, yeah. and this is where I think that I can do the, my, some of my best work. And I, and I don't know how long that will be for it. I don't know much like, I hope, you know, I hope to be there for a while, helping my colleagues. And and but I know that I'll I'll probably move on in this organization before, you know, the next seven years are done, and I go to retire into this with my my life. Then, um, yeah, I I just know. You there, mate? And I think the uh, yeah, and the main thing for me was when you were telling me this the other night, Brent, was you've actually it's enabled you to look after yourself and look after number one as a priority, and it's given you confidence that there still is some good work going on even though you're off. So that's a good confidence booster for you as well. Yeah, and I'll tell you, Greg, what has been not not to get all emotional and tree hugger on us, but what has been hard heartwarming and, and very kind of emotional for me is the number of people that I helped that have turned around and reached back to me while I've been off, right? Because I put my out of office. I didn't say why I was out of out of the office. I just said I'd be gone until kind of late late into uh, January and, and you know, taking time for myself. And there's, you know, as we all know, but our organizations say rumor travels faster yeah. than, than anything else, right? And people talk. And and I, and I told my peers for as why I was going off. And, and I wanted to – I didn't want to be the person that – was constantly telling our, you know, take a knee when you need to take a knee, but then not doing it myself, right? So I was very open about why I was taking a knee with the people that were doing the peer support work for us and, and the people closest to me. And and, course, and I said, I'm not ashamed of this. I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully I'm, I'm leading from the front. And, and, and I'm showing that even the wellness guides sometimes need to take time for themselves. And, yeah, absolutely. and the number of people that reached back to me, people that I helped out when they were in a jam, people that I drove home after uh, potentially them being arrested for, for, you know, some sort of offense or whatever else. And the offers that I gave them, they've returned tenfold. And people phone me and text me all the time. Just, I'd like to meet you for a coffee whenever you feel up to it. I'm, I'm, I care about the, the work that you did for me and I, and I want to reciprocate somehow. Right. And so, uh, that is the change that I can point to in our organization. Cause five years ago, Greg, uh, as we talked brother, it's like that would not have happened yeah. in our organization. Oh, so-and-so's on snap leave. We don't want to ever talk to them. That wouldn't, they wouldn't have, there wouldn't be people reaching out, right? Or if they did, it would be very quiet and nobody would really talk about it. But this, people are like very open about it. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I want to help you. And I, and if you, whenever you feel ready, I am the first person I would love to meet. I'm going to probably have like a, a coffee overload by the time I come back to work with all the people that I have to catch up with <laughs> have a coffee with. So I'm going to have a caffeine. I'll be shaking with my hands. So it, it's been really um, I know we're making change. I know we're making big strides in, in the way we see ourselves and the way we talk about our own mental health and, the, and we talk about the mental health of our families. I know that that's changing because I can see it as I'm on the other end of it yeah. now, right? And, that, and I feel stronger for it. It's, it's amazing the, uh, how good you feel and how much better I feel now um, kind of into January than I did in late November and early yeah, December when good. I felt completely demoralized, right? Well, well done to you, mate, and it's great validation for your work that you're getting so many people contact you as well to lend support yeah. to you, so it's great. Mate, yeah, well, thank you very much 
um, for your time. It's great to ca- great to catch up again. I'm sure um, you know if any of our listeners have got any questions, they can get in contact with me, and I'll uh, I know you'll be more than happy to answer any questions or any inquiries that people have got. So. Make sure you keep warm over there, mate. It's a balmy thirty degrees Celsius here today. So, <laughs> so yes, we're all very envious of down under for sure. You're gonna throw some shrimp on the barbie, and you're gonna be uh, out there. Uh, I'm sure with your zinc on your nose on the golf course. And yeah, and I, I'm really I was very privileged to be able to talk to you and your listeners. I, I'm sure, hopefully that they they have a, a glimpse into what we're doing as a junior sort of wellness. Uh, leader in, in Canada and and hopefully if they do have any questions we'd be happy to answer them uh, the best way it comes into a generic uh, inbox for all our uh, the people that work in wellness all f- or four of us that are working there and they can connect with us with uh, support uh, s-u-p-p-o-r-t at Ottawa Police, all one word, .ca, support at autopolice.ca. And somebody will get back to you, and, and you can ex- we can explain some of our other programs that we're looking at and send you documentation on stuff. If anybody has questions, we'd be happy to reach out. Because I think I think it's it's not it's not what we know, right? It's the collective we that, that is going to change the way that we police. So, yeah, thanks, ab- absolutely. Mate, thank you very much, and uh, appreciate your time. And we'll catch up shortly. Sounds great. Thanks, Talk Brent. Ta-da, bye. Bye.